today's forecast is looking like a high chance of pizza. Stay in an order. Domino's Hawaii, we deliver aloha in any kind weather. The Mothership Podcast is sponsored by Hawaii Surrogacy Center. Start your family with Hawaii's leading surrogacy agency. A Big Island Woman's Amazing Survival Story. Daniel McKim says she nearly died from a rare flesh-eating disease known as necrotizing fasciitis. She joins us along with her Dr. Crystal Hammer, an emergency medicine specialist at the Queens Medical Center. Thank you so much, ladies, for, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Hi. Danielle, let's go ahead and um, just start with you. And if you could... Um, share with us you know from the beginning when did you notice that something was wrong and how long ago did this happen so i think i went to the er and timelines are time is a little i believe it was like two o'clock three o'clock when i finally in the morning when i got there um, dr hammer would know better than me because i'm but what happened up to that point is that for about a week i went through my phone because I couldn't really remember. I felt like I had the flu really bad. And then I'm not going to mention it here, but I had a, just a small pre-existing, um, uh, I guess, medical issue, small, minor, that I thought was causing these symptoms. And it just got worse and worse. So that evening, um, let's say on the 17th, I was kind of like blacking out a little bit. So finally, I know I'm just, I put it off to the, I waited way too long. And so um, I had my partner, I woke her up and said, Hey, you need to take me to the emergency room. And then I went in there and Dr. Hammer um, was there. And uh, I think uh, gratefully for me, and that's why I wanted her on this podcast is that she didn't do the minimum for me. She went the extra mile. So she gave me a CT scan and that showed what was really going on with me. Had I gone in there and she had just, you know, maybe given me a little bit of a painkiller or said, okay, you know, we'll see you tomorrow. I would not be alive today. And so part of my gratefulness, I guess, of living is that when I was laying in there after surgery, after surgery, after surgery in Queens, and I was really frightened, I wanted to do something to give back for living. And that was maybe getting the word out there. And that's why I'm grateful to you folks, that if they have those symptoms, or as you know, Dr. Hammer, of course, is, you know, the expert here, but um, if we could save one person, I would be grateful. You know. Danielle, let me get this right, because when we um, hear the term, you know, flesh eating, you know, bacteria, we think that, you know, we're going to see physical signs of this. So so do you mean to say that you didn't have an open wound? No. Well, I'm, I, let's ask Dr. Hammer. I mean, not to my knowledge, 
I did I have one, but they and I'm not good with medical terms, but I, it attacks your perineum. I don't know, Doctor Everett, please help me, save me. Um, area and um, I guess because it's fatty and fleshy there, and so it's hidden. Like I had no idea that was happening to me. Zero. So um, yeah, no. I mean, I don't think everyone's that gets uh, necrotizing fasciitis, you know, could get on their leg and you can see that, but I think predominantly attacks that area. And that's why it's so deadly because you can't really see anything. So, yeah, well, Dr. Hammer, if you could please kind of explain more what this area is that she's talking about. And I guess I, I had no idea that you can't see it. Yeah, yeah it, it can be a particularly difficult diagnosis and you have to have a high degree of suspicion because Danielle's right, you can't always see external signs of there being an obvious infection. So although sometimes you can, um, the layman's term or kind of what uh, you know people outside of medicine call it is flesh-eating bacteria, um, we call them necrotizing soft tissue infections and necrotizing fasciitis is one of them. There's a necrotizing myositis, which is pretty rare and necrotizing cellulitis, but it's basically a bacterial infection that causes significant tissue destruction. And in the case of necrotizing fasciitis, it travels along the fascia, which is like the lining of the muscle. It doesn't have good blood supply, so it's easier for it to spread and that's inside. So there aren't always signs externally on the skin outside that you can see. Um, some of the things that you might look for that might be um, a, a trigger is if somebody has significant pain out of proportion to what you would expect them to have, sometimes they'll have some swelling over the tissue. They'll have some redness. Um, rarely or less common, you may push on it and feel air in there. That's when it's pretty advanced. And sometimes as it progresses, you'll actually start to have discoloration of the skin. It could turn bruised looking like purple, dark purple um, from dark red. Uh, as it progresses later on, it can turn gray and, and look more gangrenous, but you really need to make the diagnosis earlier. Every hour you delay, and this is a rapidly progressive infection, increases risk of death. Um, so sometimes by the time you see those signs, it's, it, it may be too late or results in significant tissue loss. What did that CT scan show and how far in advance had it gone? So the, this is one of the other tricky things is imaging does not always show it to you. Um, sometimes you can see signs on the CT, but it has to really be a clinical diagnosis. In her case, we didn't even have a CT read yet back before I had already called the surgeon and we made plans for her to go to the OR. In her case, her CT was helpful because one, it showed an abscess, which we were worried about. That's like a, a pocket of pus, a collection of bacteria, but it also showed air in there. Um, that is always abnormal and that's not good if you have an infection with that is air producing. Um, and hers extended from, so her infection was in the buttock region. Um, that Danielle, it's okay. I Let it rip. I have no <laughs> so shame. I don't care. Kind of inside the the butt butt cheek area, but on the CT there was also that was that skin and soft tissue infection, but it was extending up inside of her abdomen, lower pelvis, retroperitoneal area. So she had findings of gas and uh, fluid and abnormalities that helped make that diagnosis easier. But sometimes you have to based on the, the patient's presentation, 
and their exam, you may be having them go to the OR without imaging findings to support that. Um, that it's a tricky thing to do, right? Because operative treatment is very invasive and you, you clearly don't wanna send everyone to the OR and have them, you know, she had to have a surgery on the bottom and from the top because it had spread significantly already. And you don't want anyone to have to go to the OR because some people have just skin infections and it can be red and painful and they can have very similar symptoms. So you have to have a high degree of suspicion to commit to going to the OR in a very good relationship with your surgeons and team that they're willing to take someone to the OR that you're worried um, has a necrotizing infection. Why is um, this this infection so uh, you know deadly? Uh, you know, and uh, how do you get it? But let's start with like why is it so deadly? Why you should pay attention to it and take take immediate action? It so you know for most infections when you find them you can start someone on antibiotics. So somebody may come to the hospital and this is not infrequently seen infection. We start them on antibiotics. In the case of necrotizing fasciitis, where you may not even be able to see signs of infection, there's no the the treatment is operative treatment. You do need to give antibiotics, but if you don't go to the OR early and cut this dead tissue out, it will continue to spread, and your chance of dying is a hundred percent. Like it, it's crucial to have operative intervention. So I think that may be wise. And it also is rapidly progressive. There are a lot of other infections out there that you have time. You have time to get more information, to get blood cultures back, to get more data. Whereas in this case, delay can mean the difference between loss of limb, loss of life. And so that, that contributes to its high, higher mortality and death rate. The only way to get rid of it is to cut it out from you and you cannot it's antibiotic biotic resistant? No, you still need antibiotics, but because there's bacteria there, but if all you do is antibiotics, the person will, will die. You have to have a component of surgery with it. So is this an early family as uh, MRSA and staff? You can. So in different cases, you it can have multiple bacteria. Like in Danielle's case, it depends on the location, right? If it's maybe in the buttocks region or mucosal membranes or head and neck, it might have more than one bacteria, depending on where that bacteria came from. If, it, if it's from a, a bug in the stool or a bug in that that lives in the, a bacteria that lives in the mouth, for example. But in some cases, it's just one bacteria. And in the cases where it's one bacteria, um, the more common would be strep and sometimes staph. Not necessarily MRSA, usually they're, they're sensitive to penicillins. So it's not always resistant, um, but it can be single organisms. The single organisms actually can be trickier because um, some, it can occur at any age. You don't have to have the same risk factors um, versus some of the other organisms. You know, Usually somebody has some immunosuppression, maybe they have diabetes or underlying liver disease or they're, you know, a cancer patient or something along those lines. And this disease is just what the name is, flesh eating? Is that what it does? That's that's what um, the general public calls it. Again, necrotizing, um, any sort of necrotizing infection is what we call it, but that's what it does. It just kind of destroys tissue and eats, eats it away. Uh, sometimes people, it will even eat the nerves and actually people will become numb in some of those areas. So that can also be a tip off if somebody has severe pain out of proportion and um, areas of numbness. Danielle, would you say that you're a relatively a healthy person? 
Um, I, I thought I was, but I mean, I guess there was just, I factors that where my immune system could not fight off. And I think Dr. Hammer, isn't it true? I had four infections there. Um, yeah, there was the four. So I, you know, I was up against a lot and unfortunately my body did not, was not able to fight back. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, in my case, um, I read a lot about it while I was laying in the hospital and a lot of people lose all their limbs. I mean, it's, I'm trying not to cry because it's absolutely horrifying. And um, some, a lot of people die. You know, I read about a lady just briefly. She, you know, waited all her life to move to Florida and scraped her leg at the beach. And within five or seven days, she was dead because when she, her friends took her to the ER, they didn't recognize, you know, a very red, um, painful um, wound, you know, just a scrape um, that it wasn't recognized and she died just within that week. It just completely, you know, killed her. So that's why, you know, I'm so grateful to Dr. Hammer because she, she wasn't minimal. She definitely called it and, you know, moved really quickly. And so, um, I honestly, you know, and I'm, I don't want to be flippant, but I was flippant with Dr. Hammer that night. Remember, um, <laughs> I was, I was a little bit of a jerk, you know, and she's like, well, <laughs> but anyway, she, when she told me how serious, you know, my, I said, yeah, do whatever. She didn't even hesitate, you know, got my consent and then put a pick line in my neck. I remember that gratefully gave me pain, uh, morphine, I think. And then you know, put a pick line in my neck and got the team assembled. They, um, I believe this is my knowledge. They operated on me there and then intubated me and flew me to Queens. And then I had nine surgeries, 10 surgeries there. Yeah, that's, and I'll let Dr. Hammer talk about that. I mean, it became a routine every day. I went to the ER and they cut more and more and more um, flesh out that, yeah, dead flesh. So I know your face, my friend called me when I was in the hospital and she was like, it's the most disgusting disease I've ever seen. Because when you look it up online, I don't know if you folks did it, even I'm, it's really, yeah. And that's why, you know, I mean, that's why I have Dr. Hammer on here because, you know, she was intelligent and brave enough to do what it, she had to do to help me. And, um, you know, I'm just, of course, very grateful for that, but, you know, I, I, I think it's hard. Interject. No, it's, it's not, yeah. it's not just me though. It's, it's a whole team approach, right? It's, you have the ER physician, you have the surgeons, it's the patient, right? They actually do more of the work than we do. They're getting poked, they're getting, they're in pain, they're uncomfortable. Um, so it's it's not just one person. It really does take a team. It takes good communication among that team and the patient that the person you're treating, they're part of that, and they have to be willing to to let you do things when you explain thing to them, explain things to them. So it's I, I appreciate your thanks, yeah. but it's not you're just me. It's a, it's a team effort, and it took yeah. a lot of members of the team. It we, did. We did I looked at I looked at my chart, and I have no idea how this. There's like, you know, what twenty. You know, and then the the nice thing at Queens is that they alternate surgeons. So I had, you know, Dr. Salato, and then I had um, this person and this person. And it's nice because 
that Queens does that because then you're getting all these different viewpoints about what's going on with me. So that was pretty incredible. And then they have their, their, uh, their student there and then a resident as well. Dr. Um, Natalie Rodriguez, I just want to give a shout out to was instrumental and just was a doll. I mean, she beat me up when she had to, right. As far as, and I don't mean that. I just mean that she kept me in line, but she really worked with me a lot at Queens and would wake up at one o'clock in the morning, which is unheard of. Um, I think, and, you know, fix my back and, you know, just gave me a lot of, um, made me feel good, made me feel okay. So how much care. of Danielle had to be removed? And, and is it just, I mean, not just, but 10 surgeries or more? Or was it just 10 surgeries and that was it? I think it was 10. I think that's what we counted was 10. And I don't know because it's internal. Um, but like I said, a lot of those patients, uh, lose limbs they told me at queens about a gal who's 21 she lost her legs and her arms are you unable to do things um... no i'm i so apparently i'm going to the wound clinic in waimea tomorrow i one of my wounds was six inches deep um four weeks ago it took in three weeks it's completely healed you can't even put a q-tip in it so i went from not being able to fight it and then but the, on the healing side, I think I excelled on that, you know, and it's, you know, so I'm all patched up. I just, you know, little by little, try not to overdo it, but little by little every day, I'm, I think I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm a little more nervous than I used to be, honestly, you know, um, just a little bit of not feeling good. It, it, I'm nervous, you know, I'm, I'll just, I'm not just nervous. I'm frightened. I'm super frightened. Not to the point where I'm going to live in a bubble. I have a farm. I have animals, but I'm I'm definitely any sign of like you know sweating. I I have a thermometer. I'm always checking my. I just you know I don't want to go through that ever again. You know for obvious reasons. But. And I and, and I I think we skipped that part because you you said it's for obvious reasons, but just so that you know it, you could highlight the importance of why this is so important for people to pay attention to. What was the process like? What was your mental state, you know, going through and, 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 you know, Dr. Hammer telling you, I'm sorry, we got to do another surgery and working and to reach 10. What was it like in the middle? Crystal, Did didn't, didn't you tell me I had like an hour to live? That's what I remember. Isn't that true? Or did I make that up in my mind? No. You didn't. Oh, that's a good <laughs> there's story. No, there's no way to know exactly how okay. long people have to live. Okay. But. <laughs> but yeah, but it was, you told me that it was critical that we got moving. Yes. Okay. Every hour delay is increased okay. risk of death and, and loss of tissue. So in rapid progressing infections like this, it really, you, you got to act quickly. So that was my mindset. I, I went in there thinking, you know, I'd get, you know, some kind of relief, what I thought was like flu symptoms or, um, you know, another health issue. And I'm not naming that one. Dr. Hammer, but so we'll just leave that. But um, um, something kind of minor, and um, I don't remember. I know I woke up in the ICU at Queens, and I had a nurse right next to me, so that was that was great. But I think I was frightened, you know, when I was there alone in the dark by myself. And they explained to me what was happening to me 
pretty well. But at the same time, there were just moments like I remember and not to be funny, I woke up and there was a banyan tree out and I kept thinking I was at Uncle Billy's in Hilo. And you guys aren't from the Big Island, but everyone here laughs because, you know, that's like a dumb <laughs> Uncle Phyllis. But so, yeah, and I kept, you know, being disoriented about where I was. And I just honestly did what they told me and I didn't have a lot of choice. You know, it's just like surgery, surgery, surgery. And um, that's the way to to do it. But you know, I think I was frightened once. Um, I don't know why, but there was, you know, maybe on my fifth or sixth trip down to the um, the pre-op, I was scared because, you know, it just kept going on and on and on. So I just tried to be brave and do what they told me to do. Um, and these were 10 surgeries in a span of how long? Was it one month and 10 surgeries in one month or two no, weeks? No, it was like day after day after day after day after day, so one after the other. So one week at 10 surgeries within yeah. one week? Yeah, or 10 days, let's say. Yeah, they don't mess around. They so just, one surgery per day, Dr. Hammer? Yes. Sometimes yeah. more, and that's that's typical because you go in and you have to cut out the dead tissue. Like I mentioned, this is something that has, you need antibiotics, but it and it's you need surgical treatment and excision. You have to cut out the dead tissue or it will continue to spread. So you go in and do that immediately wherever they're at you shouldn't be waiting or transferring a patient that should be where you're at if you have the ability to do so and then transfer someone for a higher level of care if they need it but then that's not unusual they may go back the same afternoon so she went to the or within less than three hours of when she arrived to the er she was already in the or and, and receiving her first surgery and then went and she was already unstable. She was on blood pressure support or life support to keep her blood pressure up and had you know, she still had a breathing tube and she was transferred from surgery to Queens straight to their surgical ICU and they took her straight to surgery as well. So in the beginning, it's not uncommon to have more than one surgery a day and going back every day because there may be more tissue that dies, but it's not as much. You've got most of it out and you're just trying to catch the little bits that may have been missed. So, so Dr. Hammer, is it like you're chasing the bacteria that's eating the dead tissue? And how do you know when you're done and you've got it all? You just, when you go in that last time, you're like, okay, it looks, we're good. And it's, there's no chance of it coming back. Yeah. So again, this is a surgical diagnosis even, right? You can't really make the diagnosis till surgery goes in and they see this dead and dying tissue. It may be gray. It may be pale. I'm not a surgeon, but once you, you go in time and time again, and you clean out less and less each time, and then eventually you go in and the tissue looks healthy and good, and then you just watch the person. I remember when I first heard about this, you know, in the news, um, it, it's very horrifying, you know, and, and, you know, you do hear those stories about people losing limbs, you hear, you know, tragic stories where they've lost their lives. And I think the question that everybody has in their mind is you know one how common is this and two like you know I, I, I'm not sure if you can pinpoint how you get it I always thought that you know you have to have an opening or you know like a skin wound and you go into like polluted water or like you mentioned that you, someone scraped their knee and it just enters your system immediately like that but I, I think a lot of people want to know yeah, how how common is this here? And, you know, how do you get it? So it's not very common. Um, 
and the way you get it varies, right? So you're exactly right where it can be a major penetrating trauma where somebody, they have a, or a minor scrape, like a small skin opening that allows bacteria to enter. But sometimes it's not even obvious where the source is. It might be a contusion. That's like a bruised muscle. Like if you had some trauma where you bruised a muscle or strained a muscle, it can even start that way. So it's not always clear how it enters. Again, if you have risk factors that make you more susceptible, um, you know, you're immunosuppressed in some way, then it then it's easier, but it can take just a small scrape or you, you know, I've, I've seen patients who they just had a pinprick of a needle, um, a scrape in the water, uh, small things like that, that you would never suspect. And in Danielle's case and in other patients' case, it can also enter through small mucosal openings. That's like, you know, around your anus area or around your mouth, there may be a hemorrhoid or a small opening in the skin that it loses its integrity where bacteria can then. When you say it's not that common, then how many cases are we seeing in Hawaii a year or would you say? That I, I don't know. I don't want to give you a, a wrong number, but I can, I can look it up if you want. And, um, you know, is it true that you're more susceptible even unfortunately sometimes when you're hospitalized and then you unintentionally get it or inadvertently get it because you're in that kind of a... Not really. Usually the people we see come in with something, some external cause of it and we diagnose it, diagnose it and treat it. Um, I've personally not seen a case that was hospitalized induced. Now, you may be more prone to infection being in the hospital in general, right? Because you have lots of reasons where you have people are putting needles in you and there's bacteria on the skin that goes with it. And even though the, the, the hospitals do a good job of cleaning, it's never perfect. There's bacteria that's present and some of them are resistant because they're around lots of antibiotics. So being in the hospital has significant risks, but risk of necrotizing fasciitis is not something we see. Now, I, I might be confusing this with like MRSA or, or staff. I mean, I, I know that you did try, try to clarify that and said that, that that's separate. Um, but does this type of bacteria uh, related to the necrotizing fasciitis also live on our skin normally? And so it's already on us and... Yeah, it can. So some types of strep, for example, and the one like in Danielle's case where it was mucosal, some of that bacteria just lives in your gut or in your mouth. And then you get a, a break in the skin and it seizes the opportunity and invades. Now, those are more common in people who have some underlying susceptibility. I don't think Danielle, you actually really had susceptibility. You, you weren't a high risk person, so. Yeah. What yeah, is a high risk you. person? Just to spell it out for our listeners. So diabetes would probably be one of the most common um, patient populations we see. But if you have underlying cirrhosis or liver disease, alcoholism, if you have um, sometimes low blood cell counts, that's where your immune system comes from to fight infection. So sometimes that will be a patient with chemotherapy or a patient with cancer. Um, sometimes it's pregnant women, postpartum or prepartum because your immune system is a little bit more compromised. You know, they're more susceptible to flu and, and various infections. They may have more serious side effects. So that peri delivery period is higher risk. Um, somebody with HIV, now we have great treatments for that now. And so 
people have a pretty good immune system, but if it's untreated, that would be a risk factor. Oh boy. <laughs> I am so right. glad, Danielle, that you got it. And I yeah. am so thankful for Dr. Hammer, you know, and, and just your expertise and your ability to rid and help patients like Danielle and live, and, you know, get rid of this, this horrifying, you know, bacteria. I mean, um, unfortunately, you can't see this bacteria, but what are some of the, you know, things that people should avoid uh, or not shrug off, you know, to help prevent them from getting an infection like this? So, Anybody can get an infection, right? You can be young, you can be healthy. I've seen people who are fairly, you know, younger marathon runners who had no medical problems. And I've definitely seen the opposite spectrum, people who are not caring for their health. They have uncontrolled diabetes and they're not taking care of their blood sugars. So the most important thing is to, one, do what you can to take care of your health, exercise, treat underlying illnesses you have so that you're not higher risk. But even so, anybody can still get it. And I think recognizing some early symptoms so you present earlier is a good idea. So again, anybody can have a skin infection and that's much more common than a necrotizing fasciitis. But if you have a rapidly progressing infection, you know, progressing over hours, if you have an infection that is severe pain out of proportion to what should be, now infections are painful, but something that is severe and not you're not able to tolerate the pain. And maybe if you warm have a, to the touch, is that warm to the touch? Yeah, but that can also just be a normal skin infection. So I think that the keys are rapid progression, especially if it's over hours. Now, that's not always true. Sometimes it can be over days, but more commonly, rapid progression over hours, signs of systemic toxicity where the infection is affecting the rest of your body. That could be fever. That could be low blood pressure. Um, those would be probably the more common things people might notice at home. Some of the other things might be lab abnormalities or things we see once you get to the hospital. But recognizing that in, even if you don't see an obvious wound, severe pain that's progressively worsening out of proportion to what you think it should be, anything that's rapidly progressing over hours um, and associated symptoms with that, such as fever or low blood pressure should be a trigger to be seen earlier. Because this is not common, as you said, um, maybe it could be overlooked. So if you feel strongly about the way you feel, and yet your doctor is saying, it's just a flu, you know, go home. Is there something specific you need to ask for? Uh, Danielle apparently knew to ask for a CT scan, I assume, Danielle? No. Or no, no. Actually, I had to convince her to get more testing. Um, they were convinced that she had hemorrhoids. And when I went in and said I was concerned for a more severe infection, I actually had to... <laughs> to convince her to let us yeah. do some of the things we did and really explain how serious it was because she, um, they didn't think there was a need for surgery or imaging or, um, so it actually, it actually it took a fair amount of convincing. Yeah. So in the beginning, when I said I misbehaved, I did. And I, she, I didn't want to do all of that stuff. And gratefully she was like, well, you know, we're, we need to do it. And so I'm, that's why she's on here. And I know she's being humble, but if she didn't push me that night, you know, I wouldn't be here today. And I think it's also um, important. One of the things I found 
every person and I'm very grateful for all the people I've lived here for 30 years that reached out to me, people I haven't talked to, you know, since I was like 26 years old. And um, they all, did you swim in dirty water? I mean, they all asked me that. And I just thought, you know, I mean, I was dumb. I mean, I'm going to say I was dumb. I, I wasn't taking care of, you know, not going to the doctor regularly, not, I wasn't unhealthy, but I, you know, if she hadn't pushed me, I would have just walked out of there and not lived. And I just think that we all need to do a better, maybe instead of doing the minimum, maybe kick it up a little bit. You know, apparently I was pre-diabetic. So, um, you know, through menopause, I had gained quite a bit. So I've lost like, you know, it's not a weight loss I would recommend, but I've lost like 40 pounds. So that's not an issue. I've smoked since I was like 16 years old, absolutely quit smoking. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I'm 55 years old for whatever reason, my body was attacked and I couldn't fight back. And I need to be serious about, you know, maybe getting a blood test every once in, you know, I mean, I, I think just really being more, not like, oh, I eat organic and I can walk three miles. I'm good to go. (laughs) You know, I mean, not to be silly about it, but but I'm, you know, and I also in my little bits of Google researching saw that Pacific Islanders are more, um, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Dr. Um, Hammer? Um, susceptible. susceptible, yeah, to it because of the diabetes, right? Which, so it was like, I think the number was like 76%, which is big. You know, I'm obviously not a Pacific Islander, but. Um, but that was interesting to me. You know, I looked at the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic, you know, published medical um, stuff to try to educate myself. And, and you're right that even after we hang up here, we're not even really sure what to do, how to, you know, wash your hands a lot. Right, Dr. Hammer, make sure you keep your hands washed. I mean, I'm being serious, but right. So, I mean, what else can we do? you can't not live life right people are still going to swim they're still going to go out and do things and so you know some of the you can't prevent some of these things like I said some of these people are very healthy and no medical problems and it just happens the important thing is to um, notice if you have risk factors and I don't know if going to the ER and demanding testing is a great strategy either because we see so many people who have just infections on the skin and they can be red and hot and painful and they can be sick from that and CT is not one, you may not see it on diagnosis. I've definitely sent patients to the OR that I was worried about very quickly who had no CT findings and it was just a clinical diagnosis and it saved their life and limbs. And so it's it's not a definitive diagnosis. Imaging's not, it's, it's in context with everything else. And going and demanding a specific test like that has risks as well, radiation risk, right? Um, you may increase risk of cancer for somebody 20 years from now. If we did a CT on everybody who came in and had pain and skin infection, we would be causing multiple deaths from malignancy more than the lives we save. So it's about a balance. It's one, you have to have good communication with your physician or whoever's treating you, whatever care provider, whoever that might be. Um, Advocate for yourself if something doesn't feel right. Um, But at the same time, if they're sitting down with you, you feel like you've been heard, they're explaining things, they've done some reasonable testing, um, demanding certain tests may actually harm you more than help you, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Looking specifically at Danielle's case, 
um, and you saying that once you do have this flesh eating disease in your system and it's detected, um, you know, I know you said that you could die and the chances of that is high if you don't take immediate action. But what would you say, um, you know, what percentage does Danielle fall in for, for surviving this? Is she considered a miracle? I, she was very sick when she got to us and uh, she had already had symptoms for five days plus is at least what she told me. Um, so that's quite a while. Um, I don't know if she's a miracle, like her chances weren't 100% of dying or loss of limb, but had there been delay, they would have been significantly higher. Um, it's hard to say, we know mortality of these diseases when people present, like with her case should have been maybe 30%, but everybody's a little bit different, right? They may take longer to present, they may have more things where their immune system can't fight it as well. I don't know what her exact percentage would have been before, but um, it's not a good infection to have regardless. Um, and she was very sick when she got to us. I mean, she was hypotensive. She was in septic shock is what we call it. Blood pressure very low, vital sign abnormalities, kidney injury. Um, and, and she did fantastic. Um, you know, and just, just for greater awareness, um, is there a number one facility in the nation to be treated at? You need to get immediate treatment wherever you're at. If you try and go somewhere else or a specific facility, you probably won't live. Even in the case where we can transfer to Honolulu from Big Island and it's not a long delay, you should not delay even that hour or two hours it takes to get somebody to Honolulu. You need immediate surgery wherever you're at and then you can transfer to a higher level of care. But any hospital that has, for once you are diagnosed and you've started, you've had initial debridement, right? You've got to get out that, the, that large amount of dead tissue and start to stabilize and support their body, their hemodynamic issues, their shock. Um, any hospital that has a dedicated surgical team, these patients often need an ICU, a surgical ICU. Um, those would be good facilities. But I think if you're trying to go somewhere or find a facility, you, you will you won't live. I mean, this is really a diagnosis that this is hours that people have and every hour you delay increases loss of limb and subsequent hours after that loss of life. But how come I couldn't be treated on Big Island? I mean, I, I just wondered, you know, not that this is part of, you know, but I just wondered. We, we have had some cases where we've kept them here. It depends on the surgeons. You know, I've had patients who've had it, maybe it was in their foot and they started debriding and taking muscles and layers and layers off their legs. And we had a, an, a very good team of orthopedists who could do that here. Um, in your case, our general surgeons are also very good. But again, you, were, you had infection that had spread into your abdomen from, from the buttocks region, so two areas. Um, and okay. I defer to their judgment if they feel like the team there if there's organ involvement, your infection was, was very serious, right? It's not like, you know, if somebody has an infection on their leg, which extremities are more common, if you can't control it, you can cut the leg off and the person will live. When it's in your belly, let, let's say it's now in your organs, you can't live without your liver and your kidneys. And so it's a very sensitive area. So I think in your specific case, you did need a higher level of care, a team that could do more if they needed to in terms of other debridement just because of the location. I see. Okay. Thank you.
It's nice yeah. to have an infectious disease doc wherever you're at too, because again, they still help with antibiotic management and long-term treatment plans. Well, that was the other thing, part of it for me is that I'm allergic to penicillin and mm -hmm. cephalosporin drugs. So Dr. Joyner, shout out, um, he, you know, came in and saw me uh, frequently and he did all my antibiotics. He was quite proud of them, I must say. And um, yeah, so yeah, and there was a lot of that. So that was nice. And how many um, disease, um, like Dr. Joyner, he's like a specific doctor, but we only have like one or two of those, right? Is that right? On the Big Island, we actually have one at North Hawaii who's excellent. He came from Queens and Honolulu was uh, Dr. Dworkin is his name. And he oversaw the antimicrobial stewardship program there um, and wanted to move out to the Big Island for other reasons, lifestyle, family. And so we're very fortunate to have him. So he does a, a great job and that having those resources, people who have higher skill sets who live in this area allow us to keep people here. But sometimes there are just things they need where they, they need to go elsewhere. But on the big island itself, yeah, we only have like two maybe. Okay. One was kind of visiting periodically. I think there's one in Kona now. And then as far as um, wound care, um, so I was given, they were, you know, the surgeons were unsure they wanted to send me home at first. I don't know. We went through this whole gamut of stuff, but in the end, thank God, they ended up sending me to um, this place called Nu'uanu Hale, which um, the upstairs is sort of a long, uh, I'm sorry, what do you call that long-term care facility? And then um, that was, I have to say, um, fantastic. And um, I'm not, I also wanted to talk about, um, I learned a lot about people's expectations of um, doctors, nurses, uh, the facility that I was at. Um, I Most of the people that were there were super grateful, but I mean, for me, I got three meals a day. And for, at that time, and I'm, you know, it sounds funny, but um, they were not the best. I just dreamt of a cheeseburger so much. It was, and I had one and it was so delicious. <laughs> but, but they're meals that are built up for protein, built my body back up. It wasn't too much food. It wasn't too little. Um, and it was perfect. I rested the, you know, they did the best that they could. And they have a, a guy come in every Tuesdays, a wound specialist from Queens and, you know, sets the tone. And now I'm going to Waimea wound clinic and they're incredible. I felt like I was at the four seasons there. And, um, so we do have all this talent, you know, and, um, yeah, it's not like the old days, you know, <laughs> 30 yeah. years ago so and they, they teach you how to clean how to treat your wounds yourself yeah well in my case it was six inches deep I mean it the one on the the one on the left held super fast but the one on the right I, there's no that so literally uh twice a day they would come in and they um stuffed that six inches with gauze so they um, when my vac, so at first I had a, uh, what do they call that? Um, a wet dry vac. Um, yeah. A wound vac. Yeah. The wound vac and that thing is irritating. All, you don't sleep. And you know, if people think you're relaxing, it was a full-time job to get well, really. I mean, every phase of this in there was a full-time job for me. Right. And so, you know, that vac, it's like, 
you know, their tape and I couldn't figure it out. I was messed up in the beginning from all the surgeries, but, you know, and then I look and they basically got like packing tape on me. And then, you know, the minute the surgeons leave the room, beep, beep, beep all night long. But anyway, so, um, but anyway, so all of it, the care is never going to be perfect. And that's what I also want to put out to people, but with the, like in any job or, you know, I'm sure you're in your guys' job too, there's stinkers everywhere. And there's a few stinkers that I ran across, but I just asked that those people not treat me, not be in my room. Um, and that was honored. We did not gel and I wasn't there to mess around. Right. So, but overall it's imperfect, but it saved my life. And those people go there every day. Some of them are working 16 hours a day, seven days a week. They're burnt out. And I'm appalled. My mom didn't raise me that way to treat people that are helping me rudely. And I saw it often from other patients. And it's just unconscionable to treat these, you know, that's a hard job. And they probably went into it. And I'm sure they still feel that way, but I saw people just burning out. And then my whole floor got COVID, which I wasn't happy about because like, why are we letting that's, you know, just letting people, but anyway, that's an aside, but, but every single person that has touched me along the way did the best that they could, honestly. And I'm very appreciative and they all are burnout. I mean, so I got to know them. I was there for a long time. So like how many kids they have, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, be safe driving home, you know, after working all those hours, you know, how are you doing today? You know, I'm Italian, I'm friendly. And so, you know, and then as soon as I could, I got up and walked the halls and, and whatnot. But anyway, sorry, maybe I'm. It's amazing because they are called back time and time again, because, you know, in the end, it's that, that whole, you know, wanting to help people that brings them back and, you know, they just push through and, you know, they deserve, you know, just there are some people on Iolani too, nurses, and I, I will be quiet after this, but, and I'll try not to cry, but they were like, I was down sometimes. And, you know, I don't, maybe they're moms or something, but, you know, you know, 12 o'clock at night, I'm by myself and they just made me feel really good. You know, they took care, they cared about me and I would just be forever great. They didn't have to, you know, you could tell some of them are just burnout and at the end and some of them were, I was just so grateful. Like, who do I have tonight? Yay. And they were just gave it everything that they had, you know, not just for me, but for everybody there. And it makes a difference. It really, really anyway I mean sorry I'm sure sorry no I mean no I yeah. Danielle I think don't apologize because it's we really appreciate uh both of your time but especially I want to say I hope the listeners really were listening when you're talking about just your perspective on caregivers and people who are in the health system um also how to treat them and also the other important point, I don't want to um, skim over it, was that you advocated for yourself. If there's someone you don't gel with, that's okay too, right? You don't, 
you're there for to get better. So I think that's a lot of people don't talk about that either. So I hope people really hear that, that to be to be grateful, um, but to still advocate for yourself. There's a way to do it respectfully. Um, and also when you're just really honest about, you know, kind of putting it off when to go to the hospital, when am I, I'm okay. Cause I think I'm guilty of that. I think a lot of people, especially females, maybe even more than men, I don't know, but just, I'm okay. It's, it's just, it's maybe it's the that flu. I just, I can take something, right. Cause I don't, I think, uh, I hope you're not beating yourself up for that. Cause I think it's really common. And I think um, that's important for us to talk about. And I, I'm grateful that you're here talking about it and telling folks you. that you have to really use, listen to your gut and, and go and don't try to delay it because had you not had you delayed any longer it, it you know it would have been a maybe different result yeah, um and sure. also grateful that you're honest about giving dr hammer a hard time because that's probably I not that uncommon either right? <laughs> i so did i gave her a so hard time important information for everyone to hear so yeah. thank you yeah no i i mean and and the best part about that, the manager on that floor, when I was like, please don't let her come in my room ever. She honored me. I'm like, we don't gel. I'm not here to play baby games. You know, I don't like her. She doesn't like me. Like, I mean, that sounds immature, but it's the truth. And I didn't want her around me and and they honored it and they are there to help even at Nuuanu. It's imperfect, you know, but those people cared about me. And they, you know, in three weeks, I healed a six inch wound. I mean, that says something, you know, somebody's doing something. I went from, you know, like I said, not being able to fend that off to, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think, you know, I hope it, we don't want to scare people for sure, but I don't think it should be taken lightly. Like Dr. You know, Dr. Hammer said, so yeah, I appreciate you guys talking to me. Very, very valuable. Um, you know, all your stories, your experience. Um, you know, Dr. Hammer, just big mahalo. That is such. I, I wish I could do more to to show our thanks. Um, to you and and you know the rest of the frontline workers. I mean, you guys. Uh, without you, what would we do? <laughs> you know, I mean, we really need you. And I apologize that you know at times it's not expressed you know, well, um, we don't get that message out, but we really do appreciate, you know, you and, and everybody, uh, you know, at the hospital for everything that you guys do. You guys are truly saving lives and doing all that you can and, and working long hours, being away from your family and sacrificing so much, you know, and, and even being here, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just amazing. You are truly amazing, you know, it's just, Thank you so much. And I know, Danielle, um, that you quickly wanted to mention that now you're on a different uh, you know, road to recovery uh, financially now because after the, the 10 surgeries, you know, comes a lot of hospital bills. So I know you have a GoFundMe page and you know, you, we could also look that up, um, our listeners, and um, you could also look up more information on the flesh eating disease known as necrotizing fasciitis online. Um, like Danielle said, it's on Google. Um, or hopefully you don't have to see Dr. Hammer, you know, right. But right. And just don't, and don't think that you get it. My mom was just convinced that I got it from eating. I love raw fish. And I was like, no, mom, I don't, I don't, that wasn't me, but, or the dirty, you know, like some of, 
you know, my friends, they're like, oh, you swam in the Alawai Canal. Isn't that what it's called? Mm -hmm. And like, no, that's not. But I, in all seriousness, you know, it just got to pay attention to our bodies and not put it off until you're almost dead, you know, like I did, and then fight with your doctor about <laughs> the stuff that she wanted to do to save my life. But yeah, I can't stress enough um, how the people starting with Dr. Hammer all to the end helped me. And I, you know, like I got sent flowers, beautiful flowers, and I put them out at the nurses station so that the nurses and all my like people that were in there, you know, that we could all enjoy it. So it wasn't just sitting in my room and, you know, everyone's trying there and I don't, I think they're treated badly. They're overworked. And, you know, I think we need to change it. I really do. They're moms. They're, they have lives. I loved hearing about them and, you know, while they're doing stuff to me and, you know, they have these, I just got to say they have these amazing people I never knew. So I must've had 30 and I'm that, and I'm not even exaggerating IVs, you know, and it's like after a while, they just like, couldn't, but <clears throat> so I was getting, um, this painkiller called Dilaudid at that time, because I was in a lot of pain. And, um, so it, my IV went down and she's like, Oh, the nurse goes, Oh, we have to get the IV specialist. And I thought, Oh my God, it's going to be hours. These people come in out of nowhere. And I was like, I'm going to do cartoons about them. Like they have capes, they have their little equipment and they're all different. Like they're guys, they're older ladies. And they, all they do is like put your, your IV in and they've got their, and they're just the most amazing. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds stupid, but it, I, I was like, whoa, there, you know, there's like so many facets to it that I had no idea. Anyway, I'm done. You know, extreme thanks for you both, Dr. Hammer and Danielle, for, you know, giving this gift. This truly is a gift. This whole podcast, this conversation, all the information you. provided for our listeners truly is a gift. Um, I don't think that many people know about this. After all, it is a rare uh, disease, a deadly one at that. Um, and we're so thankful that you are here with us, Danielle. Thank you so Thank much. You. And Danielle, Thank you. Thank you so much you for taking the time, all of you. You Thank you. Take care. Okay. The fullest. Okay. Good night. Thank take you. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Good night. Yes, we gonna break up.